Our text this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it and gave it to them and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I think it is safe to say that it is a sign that someone is not very dear to us when we forget them or act as though we have forgotten them, act as though they did not even exist. For those who are most dear to us, we simply do not forget. Their absence from us only causes us to strengthen our desire to be near them and with them again very soon. As we watched the news clips of the recent war in Iraq, we saw time and time again the strength and encouragement it gave to soldiers to receive photos of loved ones or to receive familiar tastes or smells or sounds or sights from home. And likewise, dear ones, it is very significant that the Lord Jesus has given to us a sacrament by which we are to remember Him for as long as we have breath. For in the Lord's Supper, Jesus has given us a picture, as it were, of His sacrificial love for His beloved bride whom he has purchased unto himself at the cost and expense of his own blood. The church's heavenly husband hereby in the Lord's Supper calls his bride to stir up her love and affection, to stir up her zeal and enthusiasm, to stir up her holiness and godliness, to stir up her faith and confidence in her Savior. He calls her to turn in the Lord's Supper. He calls his bride to turn from her lust, her covetousness, her forgetfulness, her pride, her self-righteousness, her resentment, and all of the ways wherein she has loved her pleasures and loved the things of this life, her riches, her work, or even her family, more than she has loved the Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) Dear ones, just as the Passover was like a videotape, if you were, if you would have it, a videotape given to Christ's church in the Old Testament, so as to see every year this drama enacted before them, whereby they could see visually, taste, Behold how God had delivered them 
from Egyptian bondage and servitude in the past and also pointing them to, in the future, that Savior who would come and deliver them from the bondage of sin, the bondage of death, the bondage of hell. The Lord's Supper, dear ones, is a means of drawing us unto Christ. The Lord's Supper is a means of increasing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is a means of enjoying communion with Christ. In this Lord's Day, let us consider the beautiful picture that Christ has left to His church as he instituted the Lord's Supper the last night that he spent with his disciples before he was crucified. From our text, let us consider together, first of all, the picture of the bread in Mark 14.22. And second, let us consider the picture of the wine in Mark 14, verses 23 to 25. The picture of the bread, first of all, then. In Mark 14:22, we read, And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it, and gave to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. On the evening before Jesus was crucified, the Lord spent that time in communion with His disciples. The very meals that Christ shared with His disciples that evening reveal very much about the new age that was about to be brought through His death and His resurrection. For the Lord Jesus first ate the Passover of the Old Testament with His disciples and then concluded the evening by eating the Lord's Supper of the New Testament. This, thus indicating that the age of promise that was represented by the Passover was coming to an end, and the age of fulfillment that was represented by the Lord's Supper was now realized and was coming into being. Well, let us quickly re review where we presently are in Mark chapter 14. First of all, you'll recall, Christ and His disciples have now met together in a borrowed room in order to celebrate the Passover. Secondly, they share the Passover meal together and it consists of roasted lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. Most likely, thirdly, after the Passover meal was completed, there arose an argument among the disciples over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. The Lord then teaches them that the greatest leader is the greatest servant. Then fourthly, 
It was likely after this argument among the disciples, which was settled by Christ, that the Lord gave to them an object lesson on the nature of true leadership by performing the most menial task that a servant could perform, that of washing the very feet of the guests. Fifthly, after washing the feet of his disciples, the Lord takes his place at the table again and enjoys a common meal with his disciples, which, unlike the Passover and the Lord's Supper, was intended to satisfy the bodily needs of Christ and the disciples. Sixthly, while Christ and his disciples eat and talk at this common meal, the Lord interrupts the meal and identifies who would be his traitor. Who would betray him, even Judas? He does so by sharing a piece of bread called a sop dipped in sauce with Judas. Seventh, Judas then likely at that point leaves the room in order to lead the enemies of Christ to him. The leaving of Judas would seem to occur from what we find in the scriptures before the institution of the Lord's Supper. John 13.30 says that Judas immediately went out after having been identified by Christ. And we find in both gospel accounts in Matthew and Mark the identification of Judas as the traitor happened before the Lord's Supper. And so it would appear that first Judas is identified After he's identified, he immediately leaves and then the Lord's Supper is instituted. Now, after Judas leaves, Christ takes a loaf of unleavened bread since it was at the time of the Passover. That was what was served. No leaven was permitted within the homes at the Passover during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so he takes a loaf of unleavened bread, blesses it, breaks it with his hands and gives it to his disciples, commanding them to eat of this bread, according to Mark 14.22. Thus it should be clear from our text in Mark 14.22 that what was eaten by the disciples was the very same bread that he had just blessed, broken, given, and commanded them to eat. Contrary to what is stated in our text, the Romish church teaches that it was not in fact bread that was eaten. According to Rome, it was just the appearance of bread. It had only the outward appearance of bread. For Rome says that the words of our Lord, this is my body, in Mark 14, 22, mean that the bread 
had been miraculously transformed into the literal flesh of Jesus Christ. Papal Rome declares that the outward appearance is that of bread, but that the inward substance is that of the actual flesh and body of Christ. One wonders, upon hearing this, whether whether it also, it, in the, the bread that Rome says that becomes the, the actual body of Christ, if it also involves the actual organs of Christ as well. One wonders where to stop at that particular point. What does one eat? As Protestants, we protest. We protest against this heresy of Rome. In fact, many Protestants have suffered martyrdom at a fiery stake or at the end of a rope because they would not confess their faith and their belief in this pernicious lie of Rome, which is called transubstantiation. Let me briefly summarize for you in what sense, then, the bread is the body of Christ. The bread, dear ones, is Christ's body figuratively, not literally, symbolically, not actually. It represents Christ's body, but is not transformed into Christ's body. Nowhere do we read Christ saying, this bread is transformed into my body. The Lord says, this bread, in effect, this is my body. The bread and the wine, dear ones, in the Lord's Supper signify and seal the sufferings of Christ in His body and with His blood in paying the the ultimate price, paying the penalty of sin for undeserving sinners like you and me. I've used this illustration before, but I think it bears repeating again. If I were to take out of my wallet a photo of myself and to tell you, this is me, would you understand me to mean by that that I was saying that this is literally me that is in this photo? That this is literally my flesh and my blood, my organs, everything. This is me. What I would be saying, and you would say, that's absolutely absurd to conclude that. That's ridiculous to conclude that. What I would be saying is that this photo is a picture or a representation of me. Or how could I be standing in one place before you, in my entire being, in my entire person, how could I be standing there and yet be saying that the photo is also me in exactly the same sense, in exactly the same way? 
If one were to draw such a conclusion from what I said, we would conclude that he is completely deluded. And yet this is precisely what Rome would have us to believe. How could the disciples, dear ones, be eating his, his actual body when he was reclining in his actual body with them around the table? In fact, there are places in the Gospels where the Lord says, I am the bread of life. John 6.35 I am. And so we could say, Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus said in John 9.5 I am the light of the world. And we could say, Jesus is the light of the world. In John 10.9, the Lord says, I am the door. And in John 15.1, He says, I am the true vine. Now, are we to understand that Christ literally means He transformed Himself into each of these objects, even as He was speaking to His disciples right on the spot? That would be absolutely ridiculous and absurd. Yea, even blasphemous to think that of Christ. That he was literally a door. Or literally light. Or literally a vine. Or literally bread. The Lord means that he is symbolically a vine. Symbolically a door symbolically light, and yes, even symbolically bread, which is precisely what he is saying here in Mark 14.22 about himself. This is my body. This bread is my body. This bread is symbolically my body. Perhaps someone may ask, what is really the big deal here? What difference does it really make whether the disciples ate Christ's actual body and blood or whether they symbolically ate his body and drank his blood? Well, the difference, dear ones, is that Rome's view, by way of consequence, undermines, yea, even destroys the atonement of Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me. For such a view means that even his body was not truly human. He was not a real man. If his body was omnipresent, if his blood was omnipresent, if they could have been eating his body and drinking his blood while he was yet reclining before them, then it must mean that his body and his blood were omnipresent. And that is not a man. Certainly as to his divine nature, he was everywhere, omnipresent, and even transcended the boundaries of space as he was God. But not as he was man, not as he was human. He was confined to that body as a man.
here's the significance here, when First Peter, First Timothy, chapter two, verse five says, "For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus." He could only be our mediator because he was a man. He was a human being. But if he was not really a man or a human being, he could not be our mediator. He could not suffer and die in our place. The sacrifice for us would therefore be of no avail. His atonement would not cover and remove our sins if he was not a man. You see, dear ones, the false teaching of Rome would actually leave us in our sins and without hope of eternal salvation. And I'd have you note as well that such of you wherein Christ offers and the disciples actually eat his body and blood renders the phrase in Luke 22:19, which is the parallel passage to the one we're now looking at, but there that phrase says, "Do this do in remembrance of me. It renders that phrase completely meaningless and unnecessary. For what need is there to remember Christ if he is yet with us both bodily and spiritually as to his human nature and as to his divine nature? What do we need to remember him for? He's with us in every sense of a word in which he was with us before. What's there to remember? You see, dear ones, the very reason Christ has given to us the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper is because he has bodily ascended into heaven. He no longer dwells among us as to his human nature. He is at the right hand of God the Father. And we remember the life that he lived here upon the earth, the obedience of Christ and fulfilling all of the law of God and suffering the infinite wrath of God upon the cross and being raised from the dead. We remember him as he ministered to us in his body in the Lord's Supper. Let me be clear at this point dear ones, that even though the bread is a symbol of the body of Christ in which he fulfilled all righteousness for us and in which he suffered the wrath of God for us, we do much more than simply remember an event that happened 2,000 years ago when we observe and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Dear ones, we are not mere spectators at the Lord's Supper. We are very active participants at the Lord's Supper. That which we eat with our mouths, which is actual bread, is intended to reveal to us that we must eat by faith the Lord Jesus Christ in His righteousness and His suffering for us. Or we shall not have everlasting life. We shall not have 
his righteousness, we shall not have the forgiveness of sin. We shall rather perish in hell forever if we do not eat of Christ by faith. You see, our eating of Christ by faith tells us that we cannot simply look at Christ. We can't simply behold Christ. We can't simply even hold on to Christ and feel Christ as Judas no doubt did, as others no doubt did who lived at the time that Christ walked upon the earth. We must go beyond simply beholding Christ and saying that I believe that the Bible and what it says about Christ. We must go beyond that and we must eat. We must receive Christ. We must partake of Christ. Not simply as He is a Savior in general, but as He is your own Savior to rescue you from your sin, from its guilt, and from its penalty. You know, I could look at the food that is set before me at a table and I could acknowledge that that food is able to sustain my life if I partake of it. And I could look at that food for years and years and years. But if I don't partake of it and eat of it, if I don't eat food, I will die. And I can do the same thing with Christ. I can hear, and you can hear Christ preached Lord's Day after Lord's Day. You can hear Christ taught in your family worship. But it will not avail you if it simply sits on the table there and you do not take Christ and partake of Him and eat of Him. He will not become life to you, but He will basically then become death to you. You will die in your sins. You will suffer all eternity in hell if you do not partake of Christ. You know, we would certainly consider one foolish who died while having food on the table before him. How much more is one foolish who perishes while Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, is preached unto him? And he leaves Christ on the table and does not receive of Christ who is freely offered to him in the gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we see the word receive used interchangeably with believe. Just look at that for just a moment. There we read, but as many as received him, To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Their receive and believe are used synonymously. Our believing must not simply be an intellectual assent to the facts, 
Our believing must be a receiving and a partaking and a eating and a drinking of Christ and all that he has purchased for us if we would live. Our second main point is it's not only the picture of the bread that we find in this passage, but the picture of the wine. We read in Mark chapter 14, verses 23 through 25, the following words. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. We come now to consider briefly the symbol of the wine. For after the Lord had passed the bread to his disciples to eat, he took the cup of wine that was before him, gave thanks for it, and gave it to his disciples. Note first that there are not individual cups mentioned here at all, but only one cup that is mentioned. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, that is, the one cup, according to Mark 14.23. Here we find in Mark 14.23 that it clearly establishes that the disciples all drank from one single cup. They all drank of it or from it. What is the significance of our eating from one loaf of bread and are drinking from one cup of wine. What's the significance of that? Does it have any real importance? Is it just kind of a, a neat idea that we do? Or do we do so because it is a part of what the Lord has ordained in the meal that he has given to us? Well, first, let me say, our eating from one loaf of bread and drinking from one cup of wine <clears throat> signify that there are not many ways to enjoy forgiveness from God. There are not many ways to enjoy the life of God. There are not many ways unto God. Dear ones, Christianity is not a broad-minded religion in that sense. It is a very narrow-minded religion in that sense. In fact, it is a very exclusive religion in that sense. Not all roads or religions lead us to God. Not all roads or religions lead us to forgiveness and life. Listen to the words of Christ himself in Matthew chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate. That means narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. 
because straight or narrow is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it a narrow way not a broad way the Lord Jesus said as well in John 14 verse 6 I am the way the truth and the life no man cometh unto the Father but by me dear ones to put it bluntly it is that way which the Lord has ordained or it is no way at all there aren't any other options it's either God's way or no way there is only one way and that is through faith alone in Jesus Christ and in his sacrificial death for undeserving sinners like you and me I'd have you note secondly our eating from one loaf of bread and drinking from one cup of wine signify that just as we have union and communion with Jesus Christ through faith in him so we likewise have union and communion with one another through faith in Jesus Christ this is dear ones not merely an individualistic sacrament but we only consider what Christ has done for me it is a sacrament where we take much comfort in the fact that we are not alone, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have missed, dear ones, the significance of this sacrament if we do not grow from it into a greater love for the brethren. In fact, what was so heinous about the sins of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 was that the very sacrament that should have enlarged their hearts to love the brethren who sat at the table with them was leading them to despise the brethren because they were not of the same rank and status. There was the one loaf of bread and the one cup of wine signified oneness together in Christ and in his truth. Well, we now come to discuss what is meant by the words of Christ in Mark 14:23, where it says, And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. We would note that when Christ says, This is my blood, we are not to take that phrase any more literally than when he says, This is my body. The human blood of Christ, dear ones, as we said earlier, is not omnipresent. I mean, how much blood did Christ have in his human body? If the literal blood of Christ is actually drank, there would need to be a miraculous multiplication of the blood of Christ in order that all throughout the centuries who have come to drink of the wine if they have drank of the blood of Christ. This again leads to absurdity and, and blasphemous conclusions in regard to the real humanity of Christ 
and as being a real man and fulfilling all righteousness and suffering the infinite wrath of God for undeserving sinners. But note secondly that Christ says, this is my blood of the New Testament in Mark 14.24. Of the New Testament. We need to understand and to refresh our memory as to what a testament is. A testament conveys, dear ones, the idea of a last will and testament that is left to heirs upon the death of the one who made the testament or the will. But once the testator has died, the one making the last will and testament, after he has died, the inheritance is absolutely certain to the heirs. There is, at that point, no going back. The inheritance cannot be forfeited nor lost to those who are legitimate heirs of all that was promised in the last will and testament. The significance of the word testament in relation to Christ's shed blood is beautiful and is filled, dear ones, with awe and wonder to the Christian. Because it tells of a story of a people, of a bride who have gone from rags to riches. For the Lord Jesus, dear ones, took, as it were, abandoned, orphaned, penniless beggars who deserved not the riches and kindness of the king because they hated the king, they despised the king, but rather the king bestowed upon all of these who were so unworthy and undeserving. He, just, he, he bestowed upon them his grace and his mercy and saved them and brought them unto himself and gave them the riches of heaven. Dear ones, the Lord's Supper signifies to you that you who have embraced Jesus Christ by faith are the wealthiest people in the world. Bar none. The wealthiest people in the world. The heirs of the Rockefellers, the heirs of Bill Gates, or the heirs of the wealthiest oil tycoons in the world are mere paupers compared to you. <clears throat> For, dear ones, yours is the righteousness of Christ. Yours is the forgiveness of Christ. Yours is the contentment of Christ. Yours is the peace of Christ. Yours is the love of Christ. Yours is the, the power of Christ. And, dear ones, no amount of money in the world can buy even a fraction of those riches and those blessings. The wealthiest people in the world cannot buy any of those blessings. They are eternal. No amount of money on earth can be said, dear ones, to be everlasting, but the riches of Christ will never ever fade away or diminish in value. There may be a possibility, dear ones, when the economy squanders and fail, fails and, and falls into a depression or into, into inflation 
that what you own can be devalued as to its worth, but the riches of heaven can never be devalued. Nothing can steal or rob. No thieves can enter in to take the riches of heaven, whereas all the riches here on earth can be robbed, can be stolen, and they will be left after you die to someone else. You will not be able to enjoy them for all eternity, but the riches of heaven you can enjoy for all eternity. These blessings, dear ones, are not probable, potential, or even possible. Dear ones, these blessings are absolutely certain to the heir, to all the heirs. How do I know? Why can I be absolutely so certain? Because it was included in the last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ that His heirs receive all of those blessings. And when He died, those blessings fell in actuality to the heirs. That's a testament. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ in His blood, in His death, has left to His people. Beloved, the Lord's Supper is not a mere memorial which calls to mind the death of Christ. The Lord's Supper is a seal. It is our letter of confirmation that all of the wealth of heaven belongs to us through faith in Jesus Christ. That we are no longer penniless beggars but rather we are the very heirs of the King of Kings and of the Lord of Lords. Our testator, the Lord Jesus, dear ones, was raised even from the dead in order to see that every single blessing be duly executed and given to every single heir. None to be omitted. None to be excluded. Now, that ought to have some effect upon each of us. If that leaves our, our hearts today neutral, if that leaves our hearts apathetic and indifferent, something is wrong. We need to take a test of our spiritual pulse to see if we are really alive. That ought to, again lift the heart of all of those who have embraced Jesus Christ to know that they are the richest people in the world. We've inherited all things. Regardless then of how you feel due to your sins, regardless of how you feel due to your poor health today, due to your desperate financial situations today, the Lord's Supper, dear ones, is your seal or letter of confirmation that you are unfathomably uh, rich in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are forgiven and righteous through Christ. None can lay a single charge even to the account of one of God's elect that will stick or stand because Christ will immediately come forward and say, I died for that sin. 
Your constant struggle, dear ones, to make ends meet is removed as a worry and fear when you realize Christ's death has secured for you all your needs in this life and in this body. We read earlier in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And His death is, is signified, or, or, or His death is shown forth in the Lord's Supper in that it has secured for you all your needs in the life to come as well. We read in 1 Corinthians 2.9, Eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. You can't even imagine all that the Lord has prepared for you in heaven. I ask you in all honesty, where have you ever heard of such a love story? in which those who hated and despised the king were loved, adopted, and made his heirs. Dear ones, if the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of the New Testament, does not break your heart, you do not yet understand the hell your sins deserve, nor the riches of Christ's undeserved mercy and grace, made over to you. Would you not consider an orphaned, penniless child who hated the king and who survived on mere garbage that he could, could gather from trash cans to be most despicable if he had been graciously and freely made a child of the king to enjoy all the riches of the king? Wouldn't you consider his thanklessness, his lack of love, to be such a despicable act after all the kindness shown? But this is the way we are, dear ones. If we do not learn to grow in our contentment and our love and our thanksgiving for all that Christ has given to us and learn to walk as heirs of the King rather than pretending or acting as though we were penniless paupers in this world. We are the richest people in the world, not the poorest. Finally, in conclusion, Dear ones, let us not only enjoy our communion with Christ while here on earth as we eat of His body and drink of His blood by faith, but let us see our communion with the Lord and with one another around the Lord's table as, a, as simply a faint foretaste of, a, of that glorious communion that we shall enjoy heavenly kingdom where it will be realized, where the fulfillment will come to pass with regard to a perfect and endless communion with Christ. There in the glory of heaven, dear ones, as I said, shall our communion be realized. No more temptation or sin to hinder our communion with Christ. None. 
No more disunity or divisions, errors or heresies to hinder our communion with Christ or with one another. No more miseries, illnesses, or death to hinder our communion with Christ or with one another. No more ignorance or dullness of mind to hinder our communion with Christ or with one another. Forever there will be unhindered, perfect communion with our Lord and with one another in heaven. And dear ones, that is what makes heaven heaven. Can you get too much of a good thing? Maybe here on earth you can't. But in heaven we will never get too much of a good thing. We will continue to enjoy and to enjoy and to enjoy forevermore that blessed communion with Christ and with his people. Let us stand together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee that our Lord had such a care and concern for His church that He did give to us a sacrament to replace the Passover, even the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We are thankful, our Lord, that Thou hast condescended to our weakness of faith to give to us this letter of confirmation, this testament that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. O Lord, we pray that we would not look at the Lord's Supper in the same way again as as a result of what we know and understand about it, but that our hearts, O Lord, would rejoice as we consider the picture of the bread and of the wine and all that it says to us about what Christ has purchased for us and given unto us. We pray, Father, that we would not be like that foolish man who has food upon the table but refuses to eat of it and perishes, but that, Father, we would be wise that we would be given, O Lord, the grace to partake of that bread of life, of that wine which gives life, which is ours and freely offered to us through Christ, our Savior, that we would eat it and drink of it. O Lord, may Thy truth continue with us May, Lord, even the principles that are even preached today be a chain reaction in setting on fire, O Lord, affections and desires that are godly and holy in serving Christ. For we ask these things in the Lord's name. Amen. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, 
in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.